You know, to many, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, what Jesus said, it all seems very strange. I remember talking with a new friend many years ago. We had just moved to Oxford, England, and it came up that I was studying theology. He said, oh, you're a Christian? I said, yeah. And his first words of response to me once I said I was a Christian was, man, Christianity is some weird stuff. Except he didn't say stuff. That's what he thought of it. So I, I said to him, I bet you don't even know how weird it is. I told him most people just see or hear a few seemingly weird things and they run away. I said, but if you stick around and you keep looking and you keep seeing these seemingly weird things, well, I'll just tell you this, as Christians, Christians are those who have come to know all the weird and shocking stuff and to see the beauty and wonder. You stare, like at a mosaic painting. You know, you know those paintings that are made up of small little pictures? And each one by itself, well, maybe it's interesting if you had a magnifying glass. Up close you see, well, a bunch of these little pictures all together. But if you stand back, you can see, oh, it makes up one big picture. And it's kind of like that with the Bible and the story of Jesus. I said to this friend, we should get together and I'll show you some real weird stuff. He didn't take me up on my offer, but since I have you here tonight, I'm going to show you some weird stuff. <laughs> it's in Matthew 26 and 27. If you have a Bible and want to look at what we have there in the text, you'll see behind me, directly behind me in the center, uh, verses that pop up from time to time as we look at this. Matthew 26 and 27, two chapters which record the last two days leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And as I reread these two chapters a few weeks ago, thinking of what to talk about around Easter time, Good Friday and Sunday, I was struck by the sheer number of things that, if you didn't already know the story, would, you wouldn't have seen them coming. So many turns and twists in the story. So many head scratchers. Really? Wow. I mean, we know the story as Christians. We're familiar with each little part of what's going on in these chapters. But if we looked at them without those familiarity glasses on, we took those off if we can for just a minute, we see so many peculiarities, oddities, things seemingly out of place from our finite human perspective. Together they make up an unlikely chain of events. I'd like to show you 20 of them. Not five, not six, not seven. That's a LeBron James quote. But 20 of them. There are 20 in Matthew 26 and 27. 20 peculiarities in the last two days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, I need to tell you, especially if you're visiting with us, if you haven't been to Desert Springs before on a Sunday morning, this is not a usual kind of sermon. We don't normally run through 20 things. 
in seminary are sometimes told that a good sermon is three points in a poem. Well, this is no poem and 17 bonus points. So (laughs) I think I would fail this particular class, homiletics in seminary, if I tried this message out. But if you don't like it, come back on a Sunday for something a little bit different. Um, It's not the usual. But in a sense, it is the usual because here at Desert Springs, all we do is get together in a worship service like this and we pray and we look at God's word and we sing. So if you're waiting for you know, someone to come out and rip a phone book in half or you know, do a, a sledgehammer of ice and eventually it's going to be a, a sculpture of Jesus' face, we don't have any of that. We don't have clowns out there later on for, you know, for the kids or something. We, we got Bible. We got Jesus and Bible and we want to be serious about that. So serious we would sometimes take 20 points in one message to look into God's word. Now, if you're a note taker, I see it's kind of dark out there. That's not very usual either for a Sunday morning. But uh, if you're a note taker and planned on taking notes, you probably won't be able to keep up writing these points down, the scripture references that go with them. Um, It's not my intention for you to write these down. So the points will be up on the screens here as we go through this. We look at these peculiarities. And uh, that's just there to help you follow along orally and visually. But we'll put this big list of 20 things with the references next to them on our church website if you're really interested in, in having them after tonight. Here they are. What's peculiar about Matthew 26 and 27, the last couple days of Jesus' earthly ministry? Number one, he prayed to be delivered. He prayed to be delivered in the garden. It says in Matthew 26, verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We know it was the father's will for that cup, that cup of the cross, that cup of judgment to not pass. It's weird, isn't it? You didn't see that coming. That Jesus would ask for something and not get it. Now this is Jesus. He's both God and man. And some things are more of a human expression of his identity than, than others. And this is one of those. It shows us the pain that was about to come. The heaviness, the burden that he knew. And it tells us that part of him didn't want to do it. Now other parts of the Bible tells us that he... It was joy for him to go to the cross knowing what was set before him, Hebrews 12. But we wouldn't have seen this coming. He prayed to be delivered. Secondly, his disciples slept while he prayed. Look at chapter 26, verse 40. It says, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping while he had been praying. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They were legitimately tired. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Don't you see? The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man, me, Jesus, is 
betrayed into the hands of sinners. If you know the rest of the story, you know what he's talking about, that betrayal. He's already predicted it. He's already warned them that that would be coming. There'd be a betrayal coming. He's already told them that this is getting close. It's going to get bad. More than once, he's told his disciples, eventually they're going to kill me. This doesn't have a happy ending in one sense. And right before he goes to the garden to pray, he told them specifically that they're about to come and take the shepherd, and when they do, all the sheep will scatter. Just before that, a woman came and poured expensive perfume over Jesus' feet, and she washed his feet. And then Jesus said to the disciples that she was doing it for his burial. Jesus had given them every indication, troubles ahead. He begged them to pray. Not once, not twice, three times. And they slept. You wouldn't see that coming. You wouldn't have guessed that his best friends... His closest comrades can't pray with him. Third, one of the twelve, Judas, turned him in. That's the betrayal. The word betrayal probably doesn't conjure up the right, the right picture here. He turned him in. He turned him into the, the authorities. Chapter 26, verse 14, go back there. It says, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, the religious leaders, and he said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? Well, they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Look over to, to verse 47 now where it actually happens. This is after Jesus has been praying in the garden. Verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one that I'll kiss, that's the man, sees him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. Rabbi meaning teacher or master. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, Do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, theological answer is that he never really got it. Despite years of following Jesus, caring for Jesus in some ways, listening to Jesus, looking like he was hearing Jesus and submitting himself to Jesus, believing in what he was saying. He never really got it. He never really was of the faith. So if you're not a Christian and you've wondered about the inconsistency of Christians, we have two. And there are two explanations for it. Some Christians are inconsistent and they feel bad about those inconsistencies. And some Christians, so-called Christians aren't truly Christians, despite what they say. And even if they're not conscious of it, they're faking it. Judas was like that. A practical answer for Judas' betrayal is probably along these lines. He sees that Jesus is not heading towards a a big political revolt where the Jewish people are going to get freed from the Romans. That's what they were hoping for. 
And it seems like no big revolution is coming. He keeps hinting about death. He keeps sounding like a martyr. He keeps sounding way too weak and wimpy. So I'm sure Judas is probably thinking, I better cut bait here. I better jump ship. I better get on the right side. I better save face. I might as well get some money for it while I'm at it. I'll turn him in. But what an irony of betraying him with a kiss. He didn't have to do that. And to come with swords. To betray him with a kiss and to come with swords. He probably suspects that it's going to be a fight. And that's why it's a big crew that goes with him and they have clubs and swords and he's kind of right about the fact that it might be a fight the fourth thing another of the disciples peter tried to kill for jesus look at verse 51 and behold one of those who were with jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear He wasn't that good of a shot. He wasn't aiming for the ear. And Jesus said to him, Oh, Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? If it's supposed to go like this, Peter, do you think we need your measly sword? I got angels. I have the Father himself on my side. So there's a difference of economy of redemption. Judas wants a redemption accomplished by the sword. And Peter is still thinking like that. The disciples were slow to get what Jesus' kingdom was all about. And so he fights for his kingdom with a sword. And Jesus says, that's not how it's going to go. In John 18, it's even clearer there. Jesus talks about his kingdom being not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting for me that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is such that it's not about sword. It's not about conquest. It's not about military. Fifth, shortly after this, Peter disavowed Jesus three times. Look at verse 72. We'll pick up in the middle of the scene here. After Peter's first denial, verse 72 of chapter 26, we read, Again, he denied with an oath. They had already said, Aren't you with Jesus? He denied it now with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You sound like you're from his hometown. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Jesus had just told him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went. And wept bitterly. Jesus told Peter it would happen. And when Peter was told this, he was incensed. He insisted it wouldn't happen. I'll die for you. If no one stands with you, I won't deny you. And yet he disavowed him. Not once, not twice, but three times. 
And while Peter is unique among the disciples for this sort of bold, three-peat, sort of disavowing of Jesus, it's recorded in all four Gospels, in fact. All the disciples flee. It's not just Peter. The sixth thing. All the disciples fled. You wouldn't see this coming. Turns and twists in the story, head scratchers all over the place. Look at the end of verse 56. Just these loaded words. Then all the disciples left him and fled. In Mark's account of the Gethsemane scene, the garden scene where Jesus is taken captive... It says there that one of the guards grabbed one of the disciples. It doesn't say which, so some scholars think that it's Mark because he's, he's writing it anonymously. Like, this happened to some guy, and it's really him. But one of the guards grabbed Mark, or one of the disciples at least, in his clothes, and he twisted out of his robe and ran away naked. Running down the street naked to get away from being identified with Jesus and having to pay for it. Jesus predicted this would happen. I already said it. It's in chapter 26, verse 31, where Jesus warned them before, you will all fall away because of me this night. It's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The disciples fled. Seventh, Jesus' religious national leaders wanted him dead. This is one of those things that's no surprise if you know the story. But if you can just sort of take yourself out of knowing that for a second and see in chapter 27, right at the beginning, verse 1, just hear this. When morning came, all of the chief priests and elders of the people got together against Jesus to figure out how to put him to death. This is Jesus's Religious leaders, in a sense. Now, I realize he's God. He's the biggest religious leader, right? But Jesus is Jewish. These are the Jewish leaders. Can you imagine family being against you? Can you imagine a whole company being against you? Can you imagine a whole religion seemingly against you? Can you imagine a whole nation against you. The crowd is also against him, and they too want him dead. Eighth, Jesus gave no defense at his trial. Back up to chapter 26, verse 62. There, Jesus is standing before the high priest, and Jesus is asked, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Or in chapter 27, verse 12, where there it says, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they have testified against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. That tells us we should be greatly amazed at this part of the story as well. What innocent, falsely accused man does not vehemently protest his charges? What righteous man doesn't defend himself? 
Who doesn't clear up misunderstandings? Who doesn't point out lies? Well, one who's appointed to die in God's plan, right? There's a little peek into what's to come. He gave no defense at his trial. Seemingly odd. Ninth, get this, Pilate's wife, the governor, she had bad dreams about Jesus. Verse 19 of chapter 27, while he's sitting on the judgment seat trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I keep dreaming, and it's a miserable dream, whatever it is, and she knows apparently from this dream that Jesus is righteous, he's innocent, and she knows you're going to have trouble, Pilate, if you're involved in in his death. Let him go. Interesting. Bad dreams, part of the equation. Tenth, the crowd chose to free a notorious criminal instead of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner. He's a murderer and a reviler. He stirs up riots and controversy, and he's killed people, according to another account of of this same part of the story. His name is Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to the crowd, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Christ? Verse 21, they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, what shall I do with this Jesus then, who's called the Christ? And the crowd said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? I don't get it yet. They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The crowd chose to free a notorious criminal instead. Eleventh, Jesus was caught in the middle of a political pickle. Don't know what else to call it. You see in verse 20 of chapter 27, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Or in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He's yours, whatever you choose. I didn't choose this, you're choosing it. As far as I'm concerned, he's innocent. He says he's king of the Jews. Well, that's really not a problem for me. It really isn't a threat for me. It's like he said, I'm king of Rome, or I'm king of the whole world, or something like that. King of the Jews, fine. He's caught in the middle of a political pickle. The Jews and the Romans have this tension going on, and boy, they're, they're jockeying for power. They're positioning themselves. Jesus is a pawn, in a sense, in what's going on politically and religiously between Jews and Romans. Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty, but notice this. He certainly doesn't think Jesus is worth a riot. He doesn't want a riot, and so he doesn't save him, doesn't protect him, doesn't actually let him go, even though... He likes to think he washed his hands. Twelfth, 
Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. Jesus, who said he's the Son of God. Jesus, who said, I got lots of angels I can call down any time. In verse 32 of chapter 27, as they went out, the guards had to find a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross because they had beaten Jesus so badly, he didn't have the strength to do the normal routine of taking your own cross beam. They would nail someone eventually to this cross beam. They would tie it to your arms first, and you were to lead out into the place where you're being crucified. Jesus can't carry his own cross. You wouldn't have guessed that that's part of the story. 13, he was mocked, he was humiliated, and he was beaten without retaliation. It says in verse 27, there from from 27 on to verse 30, it says that they gave him over to the battalion. And then this battalion stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns. They smashed it down on his head. And then they gave him a reed in his hand like it was a staff because he's a king, right? And they put this reed in his hand and they kneel before him and they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. (laughs) They're laughing at it, right? It's a big joke. They spit on him. Then they take the reed out of his hand. They bop him on the head with it. Verse 37 Over his head, they put the charge that was against him. And it's also a mockery. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's not just a mockery of Jesus, that's a mockery of the Jews. Again, that Roman Jewish tension. And then in verse 39, those who passed by were deriding him and wagging their heads and saying, didn't you say that you could destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days? Save yourself then. If you were the son of God, come down from the cross. It's not just that Jesus was mocked, but that his claims were mocked too. His promises are mocked. His saving purposes are mocked. What irony to say You said you could tear down the temple and build it up in three days. Go ahead and just save yourself. They didn't realize he was actually in the midst of doing that. His body, the temple, being torn down. And on the third day, being raised up. Even the robbers, verse 44, the people next to him who were being crucified with him, were also reviling him in the same way, which leads to this 14th thing here. He was crucified with just common criminals. In verse 38, it's two robbers crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. In some ways, it's just another day in Jerusalem. I mean, crucifixions were so common. Three guys crucified. Jesus' crucifixion isn't even treated as a distinct, special crucifixion. They've got these two guys on the docket for crucifixion that day, and then we got this Jesus guy. Yeah, put him in with them. Seemingly odd. Almost out of place. Fifteenth, he was forsaken by his father. He said in verse 46... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The father turned away as Jesus was bearing sin. We'll come to that in just a minute. He was bearing sin. We know that. But imagine being there and hearing Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wouldn't you think, God forsook him? Well, then surely he's not what he said he was. He not only can't get down, he knows somehow that God has forsaken him. And now we get into four miracles just as Jesus breathes his last breath. 16th, at his death, the sky went dark, according to verse 45. For three hours, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Now, there might be some sort of scientific explanation for temporary darkness in the middle of the day. Scripture doesn't give it to us. And frankly, as Christians, we don't feel like we need to have that. Because God can use a cosmological explanation. He can use a physiological, I mean, a, 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 a physical explanation for, for the, the sky going dark. Or it can be simply miraculous. But the sky went dark as a, as a symbol of darkness, a symbol of judgment, a symbol of death. 17th, the temple curtain was torn in two. In verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The place that separated the holy of holies where God was thought to dwell from the rest of the world. That curtain is ripped. Maybe related to this next one, number 18, where there was an earthquake. Verse 51, the earth shook right then. The rocks were split. Maybe the curtain tore because things were shaking. Josephus a historian of the time, actually records in A.D. 30 some sort of earthquake taking place and some sort of damage being done to the temple. But again, as far as these writers are concerned, as far as the Bible's concerned, whatever sort of explanation you have for shifting tectonic plates, God's in it. It's a symbol of God shaking heaven and earth and opening access into his presence. Number 19, there was a mysterious group resurrection. Listen to this. Verse 52, it says, The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is just as Jesus died. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What on earth is this really saying what I think it's saying? Yeah, it is. We'll talk about these two verses more on Sunday morning. We'll look at these verses and try to figure out what they say and what questions can't be answered. So I won't explain it too much here tonight. I just want to tease you with it tonight and say, if you were wondering whether to sleep in on Sunday morning and just collect eggs or candy around the house, maybe you want to come and hear this weird thing talked about, that when Jesus died, tombs were ripped open, and then some people who had been dead for a while walked out of those tombs, and they eventually walked into the city and showed themselves to many. And 20, in case you thought we would never finish... One of his captors believed. 
Verse 54, when the centurion, one of the guards, one of the soldiers, and the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now notice this is good. They see what happened, and they're the ones that just nailed Jesus to the cross. If anyone has reason to not believe, it's them, right? I mean, if he's the Son of God, and you just nailed him to the cross, you got more trouble than the average sinner, you might think. But they find the evidence too compelling. But notice that they say, truly this was. Past tense. They haven't yet come to see what we Christians know and what we'll celebrate this coming Sunday, really what we celebrate every Sunday, that on the third day Jesus rose, that our Savior died and yet he lives forevermore. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They don't quite yet see it. Truly this was the Son of God. Now, what conclusions can we draw from all this? Or, or maybe I should just ask, why bother highlighting these oddities? What an odd sermon pointing out weird things in the Bible. Well, here's one takeaway. If you were making up this story, if you're the disciples writing this stuff, and you're trying to just start a political movement, you're just trying to make a new religion, and Jesus is the sort of the false leader of your new movement, you wouldn't include any of this stuff. You wouldn't include any of this. You'd write a better story if it's fiction. Some stories are too strange to not be true. This is one of those. The oddity and the number of oddities points to the truth, the history of the story. Another thing we can say as we take away from this is that Scripture tells us that in all these seemingly odd events, God was orchestrating affairs to lead to Jesus going to the cross. That was his plan all along. In Acts 2, Peter, the one who denied the Lord, is actually preaching. And as he preaches, he says, this Jesus whom who did many works and wonders and signs in your midst, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That Jesus is the one you crucified. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God was orchestrating all these affairs, these odd things to bring Jesus to the cross. What an unlikely chain of events. And if you pull one link out, it really does fall apart. If there's no Judas in the story, you don't have the cross. Or at least you don't get Jesus to the cross in the same way. You take out the tension between the Jews and the Romans of this time. Or you take out the easily riled up, almost rioting crowd. And Pilate just says, no, I'm freeing him. Get out of here. That's it. Jesus doesn't go to the cross. God himself doesn't do evil, but he uses the evil of evil men to bring about his perfect plan. Which gives us such great hope in our suffering. As Christians, we believe God is using it. 
We also see that in God's wisdom, he's chosen to bring power out of weakness, wisdom and salvation out of foolishness. So 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. So God was pleased, actually through folly, to save those who believe. Paul says there, Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And he's a stumbling block to the Jews because it doesn't look like a sign. It looks like a bad sign. And it doesn't look like wisdom to the Greeks. It looks like foolishness. But Paul says to those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. One more takeaway for highlighting all these oddities. In all these little vignettes of the story that we've looked at tonight, one thing keeps coming up. They all have something in common. No one is passing the test. No one. Not the religious establishment. Not the governor. Not the masses. Not even the closest disciples. They all flee. They misunderstand. They invert the purposes of Christ's kingdom. No one here passes the test except Jesus. Jesus passes the test. On the cross, he was taking our punishment so that by faith we could receive his reward. There was a garden once and Adam and Eve sinned in it. Jesus goes to the garden. He's tempted by Satan out in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, and he doesn't give in. Goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he prays, and he doesn't give up. Jesus is a better Adam He passes the test. This tells us the problem is sin, but in Jesus there is the promise of salvation through a substitute. We sing a lot of songs that talk about Jesus being in our place, taking our punishment. So Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He gave himself for us. So, We believe in that. We come to him. We have been saved. Now we follow him and we pray, if you're not a Christian, that you would do that even tonight. As one Christian put it, there's only one thing in the world that blots out sins. It's not our acts of contrition, not our repentance, not our alms or our good works. It's not even our prayers. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. God now no longer sees our sin. He's put our sins behind his back, Isaiah 38 says. He will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the water, Micah 7. And in beholding us in Christ, he sees us now without sin, just like Christ himself. He was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, So Christian, rejoice. The story is true. No one would put these kind of details into the story if they're trying to dupe you with a fake one. God has orchestrated the events leading up to the cross, 
the resurrection and salvation, and he's still orchestrating events like this today. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still wise and good, even in little details and even in the face of evil. And God, in his goodness, as Christians, we believe he's revealed his message to us. He's opened our eyes to see, our minds to understand, our hearts to believe and to receive. He has done it. To him be the glory. What a glorious, wonderful, even if unlikely, chain of events. Now, we sometimes end this service by going away in a quiet, somber mood. We leave quietly. We encourage you not to talk to people on your way out. And we're not going to do that tonight. Because we've gone further than just looking at the cross. And, and so sometimes it's good to, to do that like we have in previous years. But it's also good sometimes to, to not just look at the cross and only think pity and sadness and mourning. But to also see the cross as victory and hope and salvation. We've gone far enough tonight that I think we should sing about it one more time and then leave happy because we know what happened on Sunday. We know he lives. We know why all these weird things happened. If you're a Christian, you can say, these weird things happened so that I would be forgiven, restored to God with him forever and part of his mission to see others come to know it. 